Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. This is Tom Salemi. I actually pushed the record button this time. So I'm here with uh, Steve Krupa, our host. Hey, Steve. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good, good. We just uh, went over uh, uh, the, the Sunday's event, the Super Bowl. I, I know you watched it. And uh, what do you think? Uh, I think you're lucky and uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, enjoy it. You got to enjoy it when you're lucky, man. There's room in the duck boats for you, Steve. You know, I know you're, you're in Boston now. You can, uh, you can climb on board this bandwagon. <laughs> Give up those giants. What do you think? You know, the funny thing is, is that everybody said to me, who are you going to root for in the Super Bowl? And I said, I will root for whoever's losing, basically. (laughs) I was rooting for the Patriots because I wanted to see, you know, a decent game. And of course, um, after after they tied it, I said, if they they win the coin coin toss, I feel that defense is worn out and they probably will win. Sure enough, that's what happened. But um, the lesson is, I guess, never give up, right? Never give up. Never give up. Nope. It's never over till it's over. That's what I tell my boys. I force them to stay up. I did not, would not send them to bed telling them that there's no way they're coming back. That's not the lesson you want to share with the youth of America. No? No. So now now they're never going to, like, stop. I hope so. Never over, Dad. Never over. Never over. All right, well, let's uh, get into uh, today's podcast. You had a chance to speak with Thor Instant, the CEO of Alpha. Tell us a bit about Alpha. You know, it's Alpha is a, a it's interesting. So he comes from a healthcare background, having uh, started a company called, I've been part of a company called uh, Audax, which became Rally Health. It's it's owned by uh, United Healthcare now, and uh, within that that experience, uh, Thor developed a, a, a pretty good understanding of. The user design, user experience design, and how to get people engaged in you know a, an, ex, an experience, a digital experience. And what he's doing now is he's building a universal tool uh, for developers across all verticals um, to be able to to test their design patterns on actual users while they're developing those patterns. And um, you know, as a guy who spent a lot of time in software companies. You know, we love this. This is the, the sort of the new way, and which is basically test small incremental changes to software and see if it makes a difference, hmm. and, and then build software as an aggregation of, of small proven changes. So this and this allows you to do this with real users. You know, that, that, where he's built these groups and he's built these connections and this analytic tool that allows, allows you to see whether or not your experience is, is matching what your intentions are. So you're not only failing fast with these things or finding the failures fast, but you're kind of failing real time. You're you're able to see what works almost almost yes. immediately. Yes, you're able to sort of see it in in sort of in development. So the classic, you know, computer failure, computer design failures is you spend six months designing a user experience, only to find out that it doesn't doesn't accomplish what you were trying to accomplish. So this gives you the opportunity to test it in sort of short sprints, as we would call it, in the agile world, um, and be able to get immediate feedback. And that's really what designers and software engineers are are striving for these days. Um, they actually make they make a lot of mistakes along the way, but they fix them in sort of real time. And so it so when you when you sort of build out the code. And the experience, when you get to the end, you've, you've got something really valuable. 
but along the way, you know, you're you're making a lot of modifications of short pieces of work, and this is this is a, a big idea. Now he's he's using it uh, primarily in his business to inculcate these values onto large corporations and allow their development, because every company now has software developers. They're universal throughout, and a lot of that development is internal development, and then some of it is external user experiences. But certainly, he's, he'll he'll talk about in in the in the conversation. This product is available to startups as well mm-hmm. as, they, as they begin to try to make that user experience a differentiated portion of their product. Great. Well, it only sounds like it, it can help. So uh, well, let's get into. We tried not to get too techie, but it's it, it it doesn't. But it is a it is basically a technology service. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, you started off with some good superhero talk, so uh, I'm sure that'll yeah. keep people like me happy. So let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's get in this conversation with Thor Ernston. <laughs> Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Thor Erston, the uh, CEO and founder of Alpha. Welcome to the podcast, Thor. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing it's is it Icelandic background or where 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 is your or where's your uh, heritage from? Yeah, I'm from uh, born and raised in northern Iceland, about uh, four hours outside of uh, outside of Reykjavik. You know, I know you're you're living in in New York, and of course we've got nowhere Syndergaard and place for the Mets, and his nickname is <laughs> Thor, right? So whenever I hear yep. the name Thor, I imagine this monstrous, muscular character from the from the Nordic. So, welcome to the podcast. We'll Some leave, of that, we'll leave our, our listeners with that image for right now. <laughs> Some of us are some of us are like some of us are just normal normal people. With the exception would be the the guy on uh, Game of Thrones. He's also another Icelander named Thor, and um, and he certainly does fit that profile. Yeah, is Thor is Thor the John or or, or of, of Iceland? Oh, it's even more common. Yeah, yeah, because it's a part of a name. So, like his name is Hafsod, my name is Aethor. So <clears throat> people butcher. The rest of it, and uh, it's just so much easier for us just to go by Thor. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, welcome. I'm glad you could join us. I think this is going to be a cool conversation. It's going to be a little different in some ways than others. Um, but I do want to start off in, in uh, similar fashion and give you the opportunity uh, to express, you know, how you managed to become, you know, a serial entrepreneur and involved in, in young companies. Um what made you think that was where you were going to end up as opposed to sort of the other career opportunities that computer scientists get the opportunity to, to go into? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, an interesting one. Uh, my case is probably a bit different for most because I moved from Iceland to um, northern Alabama where it's an interesting place in many ways. First of all, it's Alabama. Common Second migration all, in history, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of us do. Um, but it was Huntsville where the space program was basically founded and sort of built around DOD and NASA. So there's a lot of, it's one of the highest educated cities in the U.S. But in order to work in those fields, you have to be a U.S. citizen because you have to be able to get a security clearance. So my path in startups led directly from an inability to get a job. You know, that's one way to do it. That's one way to do it. it yeah. You know, a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, I'm an entrepreneur because I'm essentially unemployable. So in your case, you were sort of like bureaucratically unemployable, I guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I did a first 
company was a mobile gaming company back in 2001 where we're making uh, black and white games for flip phones using the keypad as a controller and all this other stuff. And then mobile enterprise tech where we're doing or syncing Palm trios with Microsoft Exchange servers sort of without any middleware or any hardware back in 2003 and four. And uh, back then, everything was really hard. Like everything, fundraising, distribution, you know, the development, just getting hardware, getting emulators to work, getting simply the, the setup before you can do anything is really, really hard. Compare that to today, where you can have an individual or like my 11-year-old son spin up a server and write some Python and have a, a script running actually publicly accessible to anybody in a matter of 45 minutes with no real training. Yeah. So things have uh, things have come a long way in sort of access to tools and, and an ecosystem for that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting to see how how it's all evolved over the last last decade or two. And then you know my to answer your question in more directly, why I'm doing this now is that the part of creating something from scratch and then building something and growing something is always really really interesting and really interesting because you're always learning something. Some, there's always some new component. The yeah. line may shift as the ecosystem evolves, but you know, you're as an entrepreneur, you're always learning. That's a great part of it. And you know, running a company, you're always learning too. And what's interesting to me is, especially in the computer field, you're always learning that there's something out there that's almost free, and sometimes it is free, that's solving that can solve the very sort of infrastructure problem or workflow problem you've been trying to solve in order to get your product built, right? So, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a, it, the open source community is... Uh, I remember when it first started getting started, and I thought you know all the computer uh, operating system companies were going to successfully derail it, but it, uh, it has certainly come a long way, especially in the last five or six years, uh, to where you can, you can pretty much go on AWS and just you know, get your stuff out there and see if it's any good, right? Yeah, definitely. And and one important point there is that it's not necessarily all open source. Right. No, I, I always say it's open source because there's a lot of stuff that, that can, you know, the, you know, if you wanted, you know, for example, a quick search capability or something like that, you know, you can go and get it and not have to worry about, you know, how am I going to provision that? How am I going to make it work with what right. I have? You can just sort of bring it into your environment, experiment with it, and and then see exactly, you know, where you want to take it. It's it's a very It's a very quick... Development, learn learn what's wrong very quickly. Uh, workflow today in computer science, which is certainly different than when when I first came out of uh, came out of engineering school. And it sounds like you've experienced the evolution from the beginning of your career until now. Oh yeah, it's uh, night and day in terms of what it takes to get something off the ground. So you spend a little time in healthcare, right? You work for the the, the, the rally guys, um, and but but it's it's basically been a career for you of being a CIO for startups, right? It's a, yeah, it's a mixture of things. A CTO, I usually function in a CEO capacity, okay. but without the title. Uh, always a heavy, heavy focus on tech and product and right. like building organizations around that. So the thing that really gets me going is understanding how to drive behavior change on a massive scale. Um, <clears throat> so before I jump into healthcare, 
I was a studio CTO at Zynga, which is a gaming company. Um, was a big deal, less so now. We built, the farm, um, for farm, everybody wanted me to yeah, play this farm exactly. game. What was the name of that game? You got it. We built Farmville, Frontierville, Cityville, and a bunch of others. Um, so we had about 450 million users that were buying over a billion dollars a year of virtual farm equipment just so they could compete with either a, a real person they know or a virtual friend that uh, may only know through the context of the game. But if they have a pink tractor and I only have a red tractor, I'm doing something wrong, so I better put more effort into it and get a pink tractor too. Hmm. Otherwise, I'm a, I'm a worthless human being. It's sort of a psychological sentiment that you want to build through literally just clicking and drive people just to keep clicking to understand that they get something, even if it's virtual, for every click and that you build up a, a value system around engagement. And then you can start doing a lot of interesting things with it. So at the core was an analytics company. Like enough, nothing that we did was based on what I would say is like real creativity when it comes to traditional game design and things like that. Things have changed over time, but at the time it was really just if the numbers show it, then you do it. And if they don't, or if you're not sure, then you run an experiment to figure it out. Everything is experiment driven. Everything is like very, very much data driven product management uh, there and a, and a few other companies. But we, I agree, we sort of created a lot of uh, new technologies and workflows to be able to do that about 10 years ago. And then um, looked at healthcare and I saw the exact opposite situation. People do multi-year campaigns of sending out mailers. For example, PBMs would spend, I think it was north of a billion dollars a year on supposedly patient engagement and outreach and education. In reality, all of it just goes straight to trash. And it's a complete waste of money, and they know that. But the fraction of a percent actually responds enough for it to be worth it because the value is so high. So <clears throat> the economics are completely screwy. And, uh, and if you look at the state of digital, even today, from companies like you know, the large PBMs, Express Scripts and others, large payers, uh, and anybody sort of the back end of the healthcare system, there's no real channel that they have to get to patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's patient. So tools have been developed to do that in marketing and any kind of engagement, any kind of like even SEO and SEM where it's scary the amount of detail and information that people can buy on you as an individual. But in the healthcare scenario, you might as well be a stranger. You walk into a doctor's office and fill out the same damn form every single time. And then you have healthcare entrepreneurs that jump in saying, oh, if just every doctor uses a tablet and it all integrates, it's fine. It's, it's going to be a beautiful world and I'll make a billion dollars. And in reality... Now, driving behavior change of people that are buying virtual farm equipment is not too hard. But driving behavior change with doctors is impossible, as any healthcare entrepreneur will tell you. So <clears throat> what we set out to do with Rally in the beginning was figure out um, how to apply some of those principles. So there's four of us who didn't really know much about healthcare, so we got a bunch of really great advisors and investors around the table to like help guide us, help talk us through, and then obviously put a bunch of money behind it because the opportunity was clear. And that we're coming from a, a very different perspective and position for the most because 
we know how to build tools at scale that do the things that the healthcare, in our case, payers and PBMs really were interested in. So what they wanted was the ability to individually target a person based on demographic and behavioral criteria and put something in front of them, private interventions, or have a drive wellness program or any other thing based on partly clinical recommendations, but also partly it works for other people, building communities and these things that work outside the healthcare context that are very difficult to deliver in healthcare, within healthcare. Mm-hmm. So we built this general platform and ran, I don't know how many, but probably order of magnitude-wise, maybe 100 experiments in the first uh, couple of years to really figure out what's the best way to get somebody to care about their health. What's the best way to get them, even just a click, because we can't measure what's the best way to make somebody lose 50 pounds because there's so many factors that go into that. But if you isolate it down into literally just getting them to click on a button, let's try 10 different ways to do that. All right, now they've clicked. Let's get them to integrate a device. Let's try 10 different ways to do that. Now they've integrated their device. Let's get them to opt into a wellness program sponsored by their employer. Let's try 10 different ways to do that. And let's learn out of each one of those iterations what works and what doesn't work, so that when you actually look at it from a more holistic product perspective, you have a much more nuanced picture of your users and what drives them and what sort of what gets in the way of them doing what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I and I've heard this referred to from friends as you know sort of using events and event sourcing types technologies to understand. Uh, pre- and, and predict behavior. Is that is that what you guys were doing there? Uh, not quite, because there was the data wasn't good enough. So we would look at the data we would get from the payers and try to drive inferences and recommendations based on that. And what we realized is that the data is too sparse and too irregular. Uh, couldn't really do much with it. Claims that was okay, but not really. Um, so on and so forth. So what we ended up was building our own recommendation engine from scratch, where we took in uh, three feature vectors. One is based on what patients were doing, and then like looking at literally their actions on, a, on looking at what content they're reading and who they're engaging with, things like that. Another one is their clinical information, whatever we had. And then the third, and the most important, is their self-reported information. So data about uh, basically an HRA, but a lot more. So we incentivize people First virtually, but then uh, through literally financial incentives uh, to answer questions about their health and sort of got them addicted to that process of just giving a little bit of information and getting something in return. And back from the Zynga days, it was clear how to, how to deliver that. And it's not through like coins or gold stars. It's through something people perceive to be valuable. So even just more personalized content and a healthcare experience better tailored to me. So if I give you information, I get a better experience. The more information I give, the better the experience is overall. So now I've built a feedback loop to be able to ask somebody to give up pretty valuable information, and in exchange, they feel like they're getting something of value. So with that as a starting point, we could build a lot of things on top of it, challenges and streaks and and things like that, where you're really just getting people to... to, um, 
sort of put as much as they can on there. And then across those three feature vectors, we would drive recommendations of all kinds of things and then sold the capability to payers to be able to inject things on top of it where they can target in a way that didn't before with data that just didn't have access to. Because we sort of generated the data set and then enabled them to target with it. And it was really, really interesting uh, because it gave us this inside look into how how that world works and, and then ended up selling ultimately to United. Um, but afterwards, I built a series of other companies and, and um, tools to help with that process. And where it eventually brought us was to Alpha, which is really delivering that exact methodology by using software. Instead of at Audit, we raised $55 million and built a 100-person team just to do what I just said. Right. And now we can actually deliver that just using using software and a little bit of training. Hey, everybody. Tom here. Just want to take a quick break to remind you to sign up for the Breaking Health newsletter. Let us send you the details of this podcast to your inbox. You'll get a, a write-up about the guests, uh, any uh, interesting links that uh, you should have, and also our uh, unique content, our video interviews, and other content from our conferences and other events. So go to healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com to sign up for the Breaking Health newsletter. We just need your email. Nothing else. It's a bargain. Do it now. Now back to this conversation. Yeah, so let's let's talk about um, about Alpha, and, and it seems like what we're talking about is um, iterative product product management to some extent. Is that the way you would describe what Alpha does? Yeah, and that's a, it's a good way to describe it, but it's also data driven as an important component. Sure. To it. So it's really data driven product management. It's rapid iteration. It's experimentation. It depends on depends on the mindset of the person that's listening. Yeah. So the new company is Alpha, and and. You are across all verticals, right? So, it's, if if I want to build a product uh, that I want to I want to scale uh, using a direct consumer engagement or customer engagement, I can come to you and you. What what is what are you exactly going to do for me? You're going to collect data on the desires, preferences, tendencies of my potential customers, and then I'm going to build something in response to that, and you're going to get feedback to figure out whether I'm on the right track or not. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, I mean that, that's one mode you could use it, but there's there's a lot more because any part of the product lifecycle. So in the very beginning, you say you need to build a mobile app for X Y Z for millennials because they care about something, and your business could be um, life insurance or healthcare or banking or whatever. They all care about millennials, and they all care about mobile. So your boss tells you build us a mobile app. You say all right, fine. What do I do? <clears throat> that's really a common starting point. So now, in order to figure out what you should be building, you have a lot of literature out there around customer development, telling you how to interview people, how to learn, how to push it forward. But you're a busy executive in a Fortune 500 company, so you can't really just clear your calendar for the whole week to go out in the field and interview people, which is a great thing to do, but that doesn't scale and it doesn't really work very effectively if you haven't been trained in it. So our platform allows you to generate out of almost any audience, so 90 million users that you tap into for feedback, for interviews, for, you know, on a product they're using that might be your competitors, information on concepts that they might be considering and how they could enhance yours. So we do a lot of workflows around things like feature prioritization or take a roadmap and how do you figure out what the three things that you should be building right now are or 
if your boss is telling you to do something stupid, how do you push back on them with actual data? So I cut through the red tape and bureaucracy of an organization that normally operates in a very waterfall method where you would go having a conversation like that to maybe putting a product on the market 12 to 18 months later. And that really being the first time you get any data from users on if they want to use it or not. Um, that's the core problem we're solving. Mm-hmm. We're reducing the iteration cycle down to as little as days. Interesting. So explain to me, I mean, look, uh, we're, we're all running in, in, uh, in the startup world. We're looking at our, our mm-hmm. companies. They're building, they're building product through Agile usually, right? And, use yep. it and trying to, if it's a website for sure, uh, get to a method of continuous delivery so that they can put features out there throughout the day yep. and see how they work. So do you lock on to that product as I'm building it and do you become the data back end that sort of provides the feedback to each one of these incremental features that I'm delivering? How do you go about What's the use case in terms of how you work with your customers? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great way to use it is by actually plugging it into the developer process so you can actually in real time as you're building something understand how, how it'll perform once you push it live. Um, but even upstream from that, as you're evaluating the features before you build them, you can do a lot of work through uh, interactive mock-ups and prototyping, so simulated user experiences, um, which are particularly important in a regulated environment. Because to push something out that touches HIPAA data, has so many, so many things to jump through that you can't really just put it on and see what happens. So most of our clients are in heavily regulated or B2B2C environments where they don't have a, a direct loop with their end users. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, we bridge the gap and get them real-time information um, from really primary research. I mean, it's doing customer development. It's, there's no secret to it. It's just a lot of manual things that we've now automated and streamlined so that you can effectively as a product manager, be 10 times more effective. You can work faster and get data that you otherwise wouldn't have at all. And then the way you change that and adopt it to your workflow, that's really where it gets, where it gets interesting because we're just a general tool, but it's on the PMs and the client organizations to use it. And they can use it for all these different sort of business cases and use cases. So anytime where, where user or stakeholder feedback matters, so let's say you have a healthcare product that you're going to put out that impacts doctors, nurses, and patients, maybe even caregivers as well. It's very rare to have a standing group of those four stakeholders just waiting for you to ask them questions. But that's exactly what we deliver. So it's any audience in real time, you have the ability to put your idea in front of them and understand how the nurse would interact with your app and what the problems might be and some workflow thing that you've never even considered. And then the doctor will tell you, oh, well, I don't want to actually do this because of X, Y, and Z. And the patient will say, well, I would normally just use, a, use my phone to take a picture of something. I don't really care if it's secure or not. Uh, and then caregivers might say, well, I don't even have a phone. Grandma doesn't use a phone. I don't really care. I just want to make sure she gets to the hospital and it's healthy. So understanding not just the first glance you know, the way the research that happens right now is very waterfall-driven. It's you scope and spec out a project, you execute the project, three to six months later, you get your data. Versus if you can do that in three to six days or even three to six hours, you have the ability to work iteratively. 
really for the first time. And if you can do product iteratively, not just the full development life cycle, but the actual product iteration cycle where you're thinking of ideas, testing them and learning, testing and learning, testing and learning. When it comes to building it, you have a very well-informed, very nuanced perspective of why certain things should be in, certain things should not be. Or as an executive in the organization, you can now empower your entire team to work together and collaborate on the platform and make decisions with actual data as opposed to with just their gut. Do you, so, so let me, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but let me, let me see if I can understand it better. So are you assembling panels of users that are available mm-hmm. to me or are you, is that, is that the idea? It's the audience. So 90 million users plus customer recruiting for whatever else you need. Yeah. So that's one, having active audience. Another one is being able to put the right kind of design in front of somebody. And often that's a big bottleneck because you have to go through an agency or an internal design for the resource. Uh, that may take a while, often weeks or months. So we actually would let you do iterative prototyping at the same time as you're doing interviews and research. So you can do them hand in hand. Uh, and then lastly, just simply running the experiment itself. Doing it in a safe, so in a patient setting, it's HIPAA compliant. Uh, for a pharma setting, we have to do a lot of things like adverse event reporting. Somebody tells us they took a pill and their leg fell off. Um, and then in banking, there's you know, regulation there too. So <clears throat> we have to do the experiment in a very specific and compliant way. And that's an important thing because if any of those organizations just make an app and put it out there without going to the appropriate regulators, they get fined millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So the risk aversion is not just cultural. Like it's, it's a very real, very rational thing because a lot of people don't understand the, the limitations on what, what can be done in that space. So we provide them in an environment, a safe environment to run these experiments. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff that some of our clients, more, more progressive clients do. So, and by the way, there are companies like in the healthcare space, like uh, Aetna, Pfizer, Cardinal Health, a bunch of others. Um, some stuff in telecom, AT&T, Verizon, uh, tech and media, Spotify, Amazon, um, finance of uh, City, Cap One, a bunch of others. So a large, about 30 Fortune 100 companies that are very complex organizations. And as you can imagine, getting something done is often a challenge just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So the ability to run these types of tests, the ability to get data into the process, the ability to understand your users in real time as circumstances change internally and externally uh, becomes a core capability. They really sort of bolt onto the team. And so it goes beyond just getting the audience and putting stuff in front of them to really driving collaboration and communication across the organization. Very cool. We want to transform how these companies work from the ground up by literally giving them data as the fundamental fundamental unit as opposed to you know some McKinsey industry report. It's interesting that when you, you, you listed so many large companies as your customers, it seems like, you know, in inside of those companies there's such inertia towards waterfall oriented development. 
Um, yeah. It feels like what you're essentially doing is if you're you're pulling this technique into a large organization, you're essentially disrupting uh, the status quo that's been in place for a long time. As opposed to you know a startup, and I'm assuming you're working with them as well, would would gravitate towards what you're doing immediately and say, "Wow, this is my way of saving." millions of dollars of bad product development costs. Yeah. Well, it's more obvious to startups because they're living it and breathing it every day. Uh, the reason the reason we go after the larger organizations is twofold. One, one is that in the beginning, we wanted to see if we could. So the test was not, can we build a small business around our fellow founders and startup people? Because that's, uh, that's, uh, that's not a real validation. Mm-hmm. But it's, can we sell with cold outreach to Fortune 100 companies where we don't even know anybody there? So no social proof, no validation, just simply the thing we're offering is this something you're willing to sign a six-figure check for right now. And, and that was the litmus test. If we could do that, then we would launch the business. If we could not, then we would not. So and that was about almost three years ago now. And then uh, after we started building it out, realized a couple of things, and that's the second reason that we're still focused on that sector, on the sort of large company segment, particularly Fortune 100, sort of complex organizations, usually 30,000, 40,000 plus people. And the value of the data is much greater because in a startup, if you're the guy that's supposed to know about millennials, let's say, you might ask some questions and get that, put it into a shareable report and share it with your, with your team and your colleagues, and, and it's fine make a decision anymore. But there's at least 500 people that would have the exact same question as minds. So we want to give them the ability to actually iterate off of each other's work without having to coordinate. There's like a magical moment when you're, you're trying to look at something from a, a customer development standpoint. And maybe there's a research team that already ran a bunch of tests on preferences of millennials for you know, buying this or that on mobile or on, on a, <clears throat> from an agent or from a, on, online or any other use cases. And instead of having to ask the same questions again from scratch, where every time you do something, you have to go from a cold start to your project six months later, if you can actually start from the point they left off, or you can find some, some tidbit of data that's interesting and, say, and, and iterate on it, dig in further, saying this external thing has happened. Let's take Peking and, and Wells Fargo as an example. Uh, consumer sentiment in Wells Fargo just plummeted a few months ago. Sure. After, after the, uh, all this stuff came out, <clears throat> basically about how they scam users. And when stuff like that happens, you have to retest a lot of things. So your, your facts now become hypotheses again. And if you've commissioned a $3 million report on the state of consumer banking, that report is now effectively useless and worthless because everything has changed. And if you don't have the ability to iterate, you don't have the ability to do this type of real-time testing, all you really know is that your assumptions are wrong. So you can't do anything about it. So there's a, a big disconnect between how product happens in large organizations and small organizations because... When you have everybody in the same room and have a conversation, a lot of the a lot of the overhead goes away. But when you have a complex, massive global company, the value of data instead of opinions is much much greater. Very interesting. 
And uh, so, again, you've been in business for three years. It sounds like you've got a lot of a lot of large customers. Are you working with any startups? Are you in the on the venture side? Is this a product the startup can afford to buy? I guess would be one of my questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So we do almost always have a couple of startups that we work with because uh, a couple of reasons. One is it's more enjoyable because they really love it and it becomes a core part of the process. And you have, you know, when you're a part of the idea phase all the way through execution and deployment, you get really sort of a full picture of their process and life cycle and the impact that, you know, integrating alpha with it really makes on them. And that's just a satisfying or rewarding thing to watch. But also we ask in return for very open, you know, very direct feedback. Mm-hmm. Something's confusing, some workflow doesn't work. So part of the deal is they get the same rate as if they, you know, bought a massive license as a huge company. Instead of having to pay through the notes for it, they they pay with feedback. Uh, but the price point varies, but it's still in the six to seven figures. And if you look at that versus the cost of a wrong decision, it's really easy. Because even as a startup, let's say you have 10, 15, 20 developers, the cost of having them do the wrong thing for three months that any amount of feedback early on would have actually prevented you from doing. Let's say it's 20 people making you know, whatever it might be, 100 grand, 100 grand a year. You have just taken a $500,000 project and cut it up. Sure. So the ROI calculation is different. And we'll work with uh, the company I'm going to, uh, helping them formulate the business case. And there's a lot of, sort of hand-holding that happens in explaining you know, why this is important, first to the team. But they get it because they need data. But then the real fun starts when the procurement folks get involved. <laughs> yep. So I, We all know those uh, procurement folks. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, listen, that's very cool. We, we're, we've tapped up uh, against our, our time here. Um, let me just ask you sort of a classic closing question. Uh, I, I saw on your website you've got some blogs out there. How can, how can people find out more about Alpha? Uh, um, obviously, the, web, the website, I believe, is alphahq.com. But are you also out there tweeting or, or on Facebook? Where, where's, uh, where are other places people can find out about what you're up to? Yeah, so thanks for asking. And the website is alphahq.com. Um, we have a bunch of stuff on social media and whatnot, but, but the best resource is the content that we put out because a huge part of what we're doing is, is building up a community of like-minded people that are trying to drive change in these organizations. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. So we've done about 100 interviews now with experts, founders, uh, authors, and executives talking about these exact challenges. And we publish them uh, under This Is Product Management. So just thisisproductmanagement.com. There are interviews, there are podcasts, like there's some videos that are going to be coming out. There are books. We have all, this, all these resources about how to do experimentation in your specific setting, in your specific environment. Um, we do a lot of benchmarking on what tools are going, are people are using and how they're using them. And any of that data... And then, of course, if there's any specific questions uh, in a setting like this, I'm always happy to happy to volunteer, happy to chat, happy to help out however I can. So, 
Thor at AlphaHQ.com is the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Listen, thanks for your time, Thor. Best of luck. I also failed to mention that you're a fellow New Yorker. So uh, you can, your company is down in Soho. And uh, maybe I'll stop by and say hello when I'm, when I'm back in town. And I appreciate your time. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Thor Ernston from Alpha, for joining us and for explaining uh, how Alpha can can help really uh, further along uh, software development in healthcare. Steve Krupa, nice job putting on your techie hat and leading this conversation. So, good conversation overall. Thanks to our podcast listeners for joining us. If you have any thoughts or comments, uh, please give a rating on iTunes or or a comment or email me directly at tom at healthogy.com. That's the word health followed by the letters egy.com let us know what we're doing well what we're doing poorly what we might do better and uh, who we should talk to and i would love to hear from you that's a wrap thanks for joining us on the breaking health podcast tune in next week steve krupa will have another great tale of innovation